Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Tell Me More. Today, we are talking about a common affliction, super common among adults, but really, sadly, underdiagnosed and probably undertreated. And that diagnosis is attention deficit disorder. So I think this has to do with the era that we live in. So I'm 51. And when I was growing up, that really wasn't a thing. Like they didn't diagnose kids back then with ADD as much as we diagnose them now. So kids in, in my generation got through, you know, got through school, lots of times succeeded, but also lots of times struggled to succeed, you know, worked harder than they had to work to get where they got and developed things like anxiety and depression. And a lot of it probably has to do with being super overwhelmed, always feeling like you can't catch up, you know, knowing that it shouldn't be this much of a struggle to get things done, like normal people got things done. So it really wasn't a thing. So nowadays, our kids and sometimes grandkids are being diagnosed with ADD, and we know there's a genetic link. And we're looking backwards and go, well, hey, you know, if my son or daughter has this they came by it from somewhere. What if my anxiety and depression isn't just anxiety and depression? What if there's an underlying reason for it? So that scenario is so common, plays out so much nowadays. And thankfully, more and more awareness is coming to adult ADD. So my guest today, Kim, had that struggle, that exact struggle of, you know, being diagnosed with mental health conditions, treated, but all along had this underlying thread that just was not being addressed. So Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So if I can just sum up your story, I mean, you are someone like millions and millions of people who had some anxiety, had some depression. Fortunately, the stigma around these diagnoses is nowhere near what it used to be. So we're talking about it openly and in primary care and people are getting treatment. But in your case, your treatment for these conditions went south, right? So tell me about that. Tell me how you start out with anxiety and depression and then things take a turn for the much worse. So I was treated, diagnosed and treated with generalized anxiety and depression as a young adult in my early 20s. You know, it was in my family history as well. And I struggled as a kid in school. It was like, oh, it's her attitude or she's not applying herself or she's lazy because I was otherwise like, you know, I was creative and I was a good reader and I loved school, but there was always something that was falling short. So yeah, I, I went through a lot of my young adulthood coping with anxiety and depression, treated as such. And it wasn't until I was kind of dealing with my own child's struggles with ADD that I started to recognize 
some parallels within myself. And as he became older and was able to articulate what was going on in his head and some of his struggles with school, I started to notice a lot of a lot of similarities and wanted to pay closer attention to that because I realized perhaps there's some direction, some help for me. But take a step back. Okay. In your journey to through depression and anxiety, at some point you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder, right? Yes. Um, Tell me about that. Sure. In 2017, I started having some concerning symptoms Mm -hmm. that I was really uncomfortable with. They were starting to impact my, my daily life and my family. So I sought help for that. I was feeling like I was being driven by a motor sometimes and like I was having really strong mood swings and my anxiety was exacerbated. There was nothing situational or circumstances that, you know, could point to why this was happening. It was sort of out of the blue. So I brought it to my psychiatrist's attention who was treating me for depression and anxiety and he diagnosed me as bipolar. So the meds that you were on for anxiety and depression, those were changed, at least some of them, right? Yes. They were changed to new medicines. So tell me about how that went. So now you're on new medicines, presumably for this diagnosis of bipolar. Yes. And that period of time, it was really dark because I was, on the one hand, I was like, okay, this is a diagnosis that I wasn't really prepared for, but I need help. So I'm going to give this a try. Like, going to put my trust in in my doctor and I was on you know several several different combinations and doses of medications such as lithium, lamictal, buspar in addition to the anxiety and depression meds and it really tore me apart. I started to feel like I was losing myself physical symptoms too. Like the the lithium just made me feel like crap all the time. Mm -hmm. And I had to be really careful with not getting dehydrated and being careful about my heart rate when I was exercising. And I just felt crappy inside and my libido was shot. Like it started impacting everything so much so that I was like, I felt like I was in a bigger mess than, than when that started. Wow. And at some point things got so bad that you end up hospitalized. Things got really bad. It was sort of at the height of, I was on like a really high dose of a a bipolar med in addition to the other meds I was taking. And it was affecting my sleep to the point where I was losing nights upon nights of sleep and starting to have intrusive thoughts, started to have thoughts of harming myself, suicidal ideation, which I had never experienced even in my darkest periods of depression. So it was very alarming. I did get help right away. I was hospitalized briefly. And then after that, I really took a hard look at at what was going on and realized that things got really bad with the bipolar diagnosis and medication. I was like, something's not right. I need to get off of all this. So did you do that on your own? Did you take yourself off of the bipolar meds? How did that happen? I initially brought it up with my psychiatrist. I was still in therapy regularly and my psychiatrist was really reluctant to take me off the meds. And it was like, I was constantly, it was like I was making a deal with him. Like, can I stop taking the Lamictal if I still take the antidepressant? (sighs) 
And it was like, I was kind of like, it got to the point where I was like, wait a second, like something is not right here. I don't need his permission. I know he's a professional, but like, this is, this is not the answer. I knew deep down inside, it was not the answer. And it was at that time that I just came off everything. And that was over three years ago now. Wow. So this podcast, really, my goal is to uncover some of the bad conversations that doctors have with patients. So I mean, along your journey, you've had really a lot of bad conversations and you've had a couple really good ones. But it seems to me like the conversation about with the psychiatrist who diagnosed you with bipolar, the conversation of, I don't think the diagnosis is right. I'm worse, not better. I'd like to come off these medicines. How did he take that? So besides the fact that he was reluctant, like, was he like, well, let's give it some time? Or was he like, absolutely not? This is your diagnosis. How was his demeanor? So I actually brought my husband to that appointment with me because he was on board with the fact that something wasn't right, that these medications were affecting me very much adversely and that, you know, something had to change. So, because again, I felt like I needed backup. Like I felt like I wasn't being heard on my own. And it was, it wasn't until the appointment that my husband joined us that he was like, well, okay, we can, we can lower the dose of this one, but you need to keep a close eye on her. And again, I know with mental illness and with a history of the instance of suicidal ideation and being hospitalized, I know there's no room for error. And I understand that like they were looking out for my best interest. But on the other hand, it was like, I'm sitting there like, okay, you guys can, you're going to decide like what, what's best for me or what I can Mm -hmm. and can't do or what I should or shouldn't take. So like I said, it was when, when my husband came to the appointment where he was like, all right, well, let's just lower this dose and see how this goes. The husband thing is really interesting to me. Because you're obviously a grown woman, you know, with a brain, you know yourself, you know your condition, but your husband is living in your sphere and and dealing with all the downstream effects of everything you've been through, right? But it's such an interesting phenomenon because like, for example, I had a, I had a gum surgery a year ago and it was, you know, it's never supposed to be a fun procedure, but it was a horrible procedure. I had a very, very bad time with it. And and I am not a person who wants to complain to a doctor, you know, like I know what that's like, right? So I want to be like the quiet patient, just suck it up. And I was awake for four or five nights in a row, just crying. And my husband finally was like, I am going with you to this appointment. And for me, I took so much comfort in that. I mean, I think I was so beaten down by being in pain and not sleeping that I wanted someone to take care of me. So that felt good. But I also felt, and even my oral surgeon, who I adore, explained this, like there was a shift in how seriously he took my condition when my husband showed up. I don't know why that happened. I think it's because like, and maybe I do that too, even in my practice, like, you're like, wait, they brought in the troops, you know, something's really bad. There is more to this than just how she feels or what she's saying, because she felt the need to bring in this support. And sometimes doctors are threatened by that. Like, oh, great. You brought your husband. Like, what's he going to do? Beat me up on the playground after? But it really is more like, 
things are so bad that I need more Backup. support than I'm going to get in this room. That is a, that's a very common phenomenon that I think happens more than you think. So you're, so the conversation with your doctor, back to that, did shift a little at the mm -hmm. visit with when your husband was present. And also maybe psychiatry is a little bit different. Like my oral surgeon wasn't worried about me really. You know, there wasn't really anything I could harm right. myself with my topical anesthetic or whatever. But when it's a psychiatric thing, yes, you know, psychiatrists want to make sure that somebody outside of you and them is, is paying attention. So that conversation goes somewhat okay. He agrees to support you in your decision to come off of some medicines, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so you do that. And then ultimately, did you end up just back on like the normal antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines? Eventually, yeah, that's, that's what it came down to. And then about three years ago, I was at a place where I was like, you know what, I want to give this a go without the meds. I was, like I said, riding a good wave. I was still in therapy and I came off of everything. So I haven't taken any, any of the psych meds since 2020. So, and that was during the pandemic. That was yep. during the time you were homeschooling your kids. Yep. And that, so now off of psychiatric meds and you have a revelation as you're homeschooling your kids, right? Exactly. So like I said, it was, you know, spending, spending time with both children doing cyber school and muddling through that and getting a getting a really close look at how both of them learn and conversations we had and as i as i said a little bit ago with my especially with my son who's older and he was able to really put into words what what his struggles were with ADD and that's when i started to recognize like the parallels and similarities and and brought me back to when i was his age and my daughter's age and some of the struggles i had in school and in life and thought that there was something worth exploring there. So you say to yourself, hmm, what if this is attention deficit disorder? And going back to, you know, my intro, you know, maybe some of those other symptoms, anxiety, depression, stemmed from the ADD, right? Because you're just spinning your wheels constantly. Right and not getting the attention or the help that you need. So you're like, maybe there's something to this. So you're already very well plugged in, right? You have a psychiatrist, you have a therapist, you have a neurologist, because right. you also have migraines. So the neurologist is the first person you bring it up to, right? Right. So I had a routine appointment with them, like a yearly check for, for migraines. And as any appointment, you know, he asks if there's any other concerns. And I was like, well, since you mentioned it, I've been thinking about this and I'm here. So, you know, what's, what's the next step or how do we address this or what do you recommend? And he was like, well, you know, let's just make sure we have your headaches under control and I'm going to see you back in six months. So if this is still a concern, we can revisit it then. Hmm. So, so felt totally it, blown off. Right. I was just going to say that. So this is a doctor you've had a relationship with. Now, to be fair, I'm not sure, you know, a neurologist would be the one to treat ADD, but maybe, I mean, he's as close to a psychiatrist as you're going to get. And he's someone who knows you and has a relationship with you. So 
But at that moment, he's like, nah. And, and basically says to you, whatever's happening, just go live with it for six months and then we'll talk again. Yeah. And, and you felt, you know, basically dismissed, like, see ya. And as a patient, you're like, well, I guess that's what I have to do, right? Like, what am I going to do? Diagnose myself? So you go on for six more months. Right? right. And the only reason I had even brought that up there, we were, like I said, we were in the pandemic, right? And he's like the one practitioner I'd seen in person in, in ages. And there happened to be a notepad with, I guess it was an ADD or ADHD med and like, talk to your doctor about this. And it was something that I had been like, yeah, there's this, I've been ruminating about this. So it was like, okay, this is my sign. I'm going to bring it up. Like I've been hesitant to even like broach this or say anything. Like, it's like, I don't know. Do I want to like even, so I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to bring it up. I'm just going to get this out there. And then like, like you said, yeah, essentially dismissed for another six months. So, but as you are a good patient, you go back to that practice six months later. And what happens? So I had my follow up or my six month check with the nurse practitioner. And she was, you know, reviewing the notes. And she felt that that was worth digging into and that it was worth paying some attention to. And she asked me some good questions about it. And like, why did I why did I bring this up and what concerns did I have? And she was like, well, you know, this is great. This is easy. Like I'm going to refer you to this neuropsychologist and you'll have testing and then you'll come back here for a follow-up and we can take it from there. Wow. So let's compare and contrast the two neurology interactions. So two clinicians in the same practice, Presumably, the nurse practitioner works under the supervision of the neurologist, right? Right. So you would think they'd have, you know, very similar styles, if not, definitely not identical, but similar Mm -hmm. approaches, right? So first, the doctor actually is very dismissive. We'll talk about it in six months. The nurse practitioner digs deeper and asks you some very, you know, pointed questions that lead her to the conclusion that you need further testing. So even at the six month visit, you didn't walk out of there with a diagnosis and treatment, but you walked out of there, you feeling heard, validated, hopeful hopeful that, that there was some, some step that would get you to the diagnosis. Right. Right. So I I know that everybody listening now is like, oh my God, there's going to be a happy ending soon. This is just, she's finally getting tested. But no, so you do go get tested and you see an amazing neuropsychologist and, you know, no shocker confirms that you have ADD, right? But the neuropsychologist can't prescribe meds. So she gives you your report Mm -hmm. and says, go back to to your doctor. Now you have proof. All you need is somebody to prescribe medicine. Right. And, and what at this happens? Point, yes, I'm like, I'm stoked. I'm like, okay, I've got this six page report and this, you know, this paragraph about bipolar diagnosis was likely not correct for, for this reason, that reason, blah, blah, blah. So I go back to the neurologist and they're like, oh no, we actually won't prescribe anything because of your mental health history. It's like <laughs> the scarlet letter, the B, the bipolar disorder. So right. no, no stimulants for you because, you know, we don't want to 
Podomatic episode into emotions. I felt very defeated. They told me to go to my primary. She was like, I don't treat adult ADHD, especially with a mental health diagnosis. So she said, here, let me refer you to a psychiatrist, which was the psychiatrist who originally diagnosed me. Wow. So, and your primary doctor is a doctor you've been seeing for a long time, right? Yes. Decades. This is something that I could definitely see and I know happens in my practice, right? So I know people for decades now, 20 plus years. And I don't, like, I know them. Like, I can tell you, you know, someone's, their husband and their kids and, you know, the traumas they've had in their life and what blood pressure medicine they take. But, you know, spanning a course of years, I might not remember which doctors I referred which patients to, right? Right. But <laughs> I almost always would look because, and I, you know, because it, it's happened to me once where I'm like, okay, go see this person. And they're like, don't you remember? This is the person that did the surgery that killed my father. And I was like, oh my God, I did not remember that. Right. So ever since then, I'm just very mindful to make sure that if people have not had a good experience, I don't send them back to that same person. But that's not what happened here. And maybe it's because there's just not a lot of psychiatrists to pick from, right? Right. So did you just, did you say, all right, well, I'll go back to him or her? Oh, hell no. I was like, (laughs) I told her, I was like, I had a Zoom with her telehealth about this. And I was like crying because I was like, I was like, this is where this whole like mess started back in 2017. And I felt like I lost, you know, years to that. And it was just really like, I felt so defeated. And so she was like, all right, well, here, let me recommend this practice. So like I said, I got on a waiting list, finally got in with an appointment there. And again, it's it's during COVID. So it was a telehealth and I met with a practitioner online and she heard my story and she had a copy of the report and she was like, well, we can put you back on Wellbutrin, which is, you know, an antidepressant prescribed off label sometimes for ADHD. And I was like, well, I was on that for years. Like, so I, I didn't pursue that. Wow. Okay. So you're still now months have gone by, right? And you're still carrying around this diagnosis. You know, you have it. You're living with it daily, but still can't find someone to treat you. So before we get back to how you ultimately end up on treatment, can, can you tell me a little bit of what living with ADD as an adult is like, what kind of problems or symptoms did you have? So if I like step back and like look at the past, I don't know, however many years or I've been a parent for 18 years now, I see a lot of jumping around as far as careers and jobs that I, in the moment, it's like, oh, well, this is just until this one starts kindergarten. And I'm just going to do this for a little while until this and kind of jumping all over the place, different interests. It looks like piles of stuff all over my house. It looks like walking through a room and every cabinet is open. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my husband's like, what happened here? Closing mm-hmm. cabinets behind me. It looks like forgetting appointments. I forgot the first appointment that took me months to get at the neuropsychologist. I missed the first call. It's wow. it's like a glitch. It's like a glitch. Mm-hmm. And it affects everything. It's procrastinating. It is 
you know, responsibilities that should be not a big deal at all, like putting a stamp on something and putting it in the mailbox that, you know, is a overwhelming task looming before me for days and days and days. Those are just a few, few examples. So, wow. So, you know, people think that maybe if you have ADD as a kid, you know, that's going to affect your ability to perform in school and affect your future and affect your career. But when you have ADD as an adult and you've got kids to take care of and bills to pay and, you know, dinner to make and laundry to fold, like it impacts your day to day life in a very traumatic way. And then it starts to probably bleed into your relationships, I would imagine. Like 100%. I know my husband, yeah, like I forget one thing and he's like, well, I told you that. So yeah, I mean, I think that that is totally understandable. So you have dealt with this for a long time. You finally have an answer. You've still not gotten treated. You see this new psychiatrist who's like, here's maybe something that'll help, but not really. Because the ultimate irony here is nobody wants to treat you with the effective drugs for ADD, the stimulants, because you're carrying around this diagnosis of bipolar and bipolar patients can become manic. And that mania is much more enhanced when you're on stimulant drugs. So everybody sees what your diagnosis is. There's a very thorough, well-documented, reliable, validated report. Mm -hmm. but they're still carrying around this idea that you have bipolar. Nobody has kind of wiped the slate clean. So yeah, you, sure, you may have, you have ADD, I believe you, but you also have bipolar. Nobody is willing to take that away, right? Right, right. And so, and then what happens? So I am finally like at my wits end because I want to move on. I want to, I'm thinking about going back to school. I'm thinking about, there's, there's things in my life that I feel like would be more attainable or I can make happen if I have, I have this help that I feel like I need medication. Mm -hmm. So I reluctantly went back to that psychiatrist. And he's treating me again. I'm now an established patient again after a lapse of three years. And he has me on a very low dose of Ritalin, which I take a few times a week. And it, it does help incrementally. And I'm thankful for that. And it's nice to have a glimpse of what that potential might be like. But for now, I mean, it's kind of like I'll take what I can get. I'm also, so and also to be fair, like I am employing like, many other strategies. Like I've, I've read right, the book right. and like, I've been mm -hmm. dealing with this with my, with my son for years. So, you know, there are strategies and coping mechanisms that I'm familiar with and that absolutely do help me since I put them into play, but I do feel like I'm missing out a bit. So, you know, I would have thought the worst thing was, you know, having to go back to this doctor that really got it so wrong for you. I would have th thought that would be a terrible thing. But then as I think about your story, I'm like, well, Hey, that's actually a fantastic thing because if there's one doctor who could set aside the bipolar diagnosis and prescribe effective treatment, it's going to be the one who made the bipolar diagnosis and now recognizes that it's not right. Right. So did that conversation come up as you were getting your first prescription for Ritalin? Like, hey, I was never bipolar. 
It sure did. And, you know, he has the report. And as I said, in the report, it does say, you know, that the bipolar diagnosis was likely not correct in the first place for many reasons. He is still, I think, reluctant to let go of that. I don't know. I, I just feel like I'm just biding my time. I mean, I'm, I check in with him as instructed and you know, as I said, I'm employing the other strategies that he's recommended. I've read the books that he's recommended, but I do still feel like there's a missing piece. He is very conservative and I respect that. I mean, that's kind of, that's what I did like about him when I saw him before the bipolar diagnosis, when I was being treated for depression and anxiety, because I was reluctant to be medicated for anything for a long time. So I did appreciate his conservative approach, but now I'm like, again, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's a stumbling block. Right, right. And have you gone back to your primary doctor just, you know, to say, hey, this is actually what's happening, but I guess your primary doctor still is not prescribing ADD meds. No, yeah, I mean, she, yeah she said she won't treat, you know, adults for ADHD anyway. So, mm. and yeah. again, I respect that. If that's not in her wheelhouse and that's, and I get it, it is, it is tricky with a mental health diagnosis of any kind, but yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many lessons in your story, Kim, that I think lots and lots of patients should take and lots and lots of doctors should take. I mean, I think one of the things is it's really important that we are careful about diagnosing patients with any disease, but especially with mental health diseases, because those things, we carry them around, you know, whether it's something new comes up, like in your case, new doctor or whatever, but like a life insurance plan or a job or, you know, whatever. So, you know, slapping a diagnosis on should take pause. We should definitely should take pause with that. And then for patients, like, like you did, the minute it doesn't feel right, seem right. I mean, more should be happening, right? Like you should be saying more, speaking up. But a lot of times, you know, we start to believe the story that we're told, right? We're told you have anxiety, you have depression, you have bipolar. So I know for me, I would start to say, well, should I even be thinking this? Like, what qualification do I have to right. say I'm not bipolar? Like, as an expert told me that. Right. And I don't want to be bipolar. So that's probably where it's coming from. You know, you start to doubt your own motivation which is a terrible thing because you're the one living in this body and in this diagnosis and moving through life with this thing. And you're the only one who can say it is or isn't true. So, you know, maybe a lesson is, especially when it comes to mental health diagnoses, just really taking a minute and asking, like, is this really a diagnosis? Like I have patients who will lose a loved one, you know, and go through a tremendous grieving period and they will get diagnosed with major clinical depression. Well, is it though? Is right. it or is it grief? Is it right. bereavement? Is it, you know, reactive depression? But, you know, we doctors, you know, everybody's busy. We just slap these diagnoses on and move on. But the, the accuracy is so important. And then for you as the patient, you know, advocating for yourself is so important. I also think the waiting six months thing, like, 
Nobody should wait six months for anything. That is bonkers to me. Like, I just, I mean, okay, fine. Give it a little time. We've all said that, you know, right. here, you know, try this, give it a month or two, but to do nothing, zero for six months, that seems like just wasting your time. So maybe that's another lesson that patients could take is like, the plan shouldn't be do nothing for six months. I can't think of a time where that's the plan. You know, sometimes if somebody has an abnormal imaging test, right, and we're watching something, we're like, okay, let's do it again in six months, but we're waiting to see if something grows. You know, our patient's not walking around with a symptom or a problem, and we're like, yeah, all we could do is wait. So that's another thing. And then I think one of the best lessons here, honestly, is you do what you have to do. So when access to care is limited and your options are take Wellbutrin from this psychiatrist, take nothing from your primary care doctor, or take a teeny bit of Ritalin from the psychiatrist willing to prescribe it. You're basically like, I'll take what I can get. Can I ask you, where do you live? Um, Westchester. Oh, so you're local. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cause I know, you know, in some areas of the country, it's just like, you can't do anything right. about it because there's, there just isn't any doctors. I would think in your area, you could probably do a little better than five milligrams of Ritalin. And I, I'm honestly saying that to you. And I, I think, you know, this can be off, off record. I treat a ton of adults with ADD and I'm a primary care doctor. And there are some where we get to a point where the diagnosis is, is questionable or the meds, like the doses are super high and it's just starting to get outside my comfort. But when someone has that confirmation with the neuropsychological testing, it's so simple. I mean, the medications are controlled. There's right. rules we have to follow. Like there's a bunch of stuff, but it's not hard. And I know I sound like I'm trying to sell myself to you and I'm no. absolutely not. I'm just, I think that you don't have to stay on five milligrams of Ritalin is what I want you to hear. I Because I know exactly what you're describing. I have so many patients exactly like you who've already suffered a whole lifetime, you know, and finally are like somewhere where, hey, I could be better and they just can't get the medicine they need. So don't stop here. Don't assume that this is as good as it's going to be. Somebody's going to have to take a chance on you. And maybe what if, God forbid you go on a real dose of a ADD med and it doesn't go well. You end up having tremendous anxiety or you get right. a manic episode or something. Well, lesson guess learned. What? I'm aware of that. And like, guess what? Yeah. Nobody wants, nobody wants to avoid that more than me. Like I do not want to go down that road. I do not want to be in a dangerous right. situation. I don't want to be in a dark place. Like I know how to ask for help. That's, that's why we're having this conversation. Like that's what right. started this whole thing in the first place. You know what I mean? So that, right. that blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so, it's so a little bit disappointing because I think you've come such a long way and went through so, 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 so much mm -hmm. and you're hitting this roadblock in terms of the treatment. The other thing about adult ADD that I think is hard is that we are all now completely overwhelmed. Like adults today are not like our parents. You know, our parents were busy, but this is ridiculous. The amount of crap that we do every single day. And, you know, some people would argue that 
if you took your average person off the street with kids and a job and a husband and a house, they would do well on ADD meds, whether or not they had a diagnosis, because we all are just so over scheduled and have so much to keep track of. But when you actually have the diagnosis and the gold standard diagnosis, and most people, by the way, don't do that. Most people right. don't get neuropsychological testing. They do like a, you know, 20 question, you know, right. survey. And then we're like, Oh, it's probably ADD. Let's see how you do on meds. So you've really done it all. I think you just need to break through to that next layer of treatment. So just like you advocated for yourself all to this point, I think you need to keep doing that. So if you could leave our listeners with one thought, like in my story, (laughs) here's the one thing I wish people would take away and change, what would that be? It's not too late ever to seek another answer. And if your intuition or your gut is telling you that something is not right, then you need to honor that and heed that and keep searching. That's that's so great. I think in every episode we've had so far, that idea of stick to your gut has come up so many times because, you know, patients are intimidated sometimes by their doctors. You know, they're like, I okay, you're the expert. And It's not until you walk away from that interaction and start to, you know, let the diagnosis that you were giving sit with you for a while that you're like, that doesn't seem right. And then good luck getting a hold of that doctor, right? Right on. (laughs) Sit on the phone for like two hours, you know, send a million messages. I, I say this from a place of being there and done that on the other side where, you know, I just know how busy we are and we're just trying to constantly put out a fire and the message from the patient who, listen, this patient has this diagnosis. Like, why is she asking me this question? <laughs> I am sure. But, you know, I think if you, if you message me twice like that, I would, that would get my attention. I'd be right. like, okay, this is not her questioning me. This is her really having a concern that we need to take a closer look. And not that even needing to ask or say it twice is right. I think it's terrible, but it's the nature of what we do. And part of my goal with this whole thing is to change that, is to change just how much our patients need to say to get what they need. And, you know, taking back from us for our patients, like, if you did this, you would be heard maybe a little bit faster, a little Mm -hmm. bit more. Like, I think for you, I would not have walked out of that room with that neurologist with the wait six months. I would have been like, no, that's not an acceptable answer. Right. But you were, you were beaten down by the system for a few wow. years. At that point, you're like, oh, let me just go then. So this was so, so helpful. Is there anything else you want to add, Kim? You were just amazing. I really appreciate your time. That was really No, good. I just want to thank you for having this platform and starting this conversation in general. I've listened, I've listened to you speak to others on this podcast. And I think it's awesome that you're, you know, giving your time and your energy to this. I know how busy you are. Mm-hmm. And the past few years, just the information you've put out there, you know, with regards to the pandemic and just healthcare in general, I think this is a conversation worth having. And I just really am grateful for for your platform. 
Thank you so much, Kim. So please come back in a while, not six months. <laughs> and and share with me, you know, how your journey goes. And if I can help you since we're local, reach out to me separately. I might have some resources for you that could really get you to that next step that you're looking for. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer, MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare. 